Let's open our Bibles on this Sabbath evening to the book of Acts, the 16th chapter. Very familiar passage. How wonderful it is for us to dwell upon some notable conversions in the New Testament from time to time and to remember what the Lord has done and to see something of how He works. Let's pray before reading from Acts 16. Our Father and our God, as we this evening pour over this simple, profound passage of Scripture, we ask that you would first of all help us to rejoice in the salvation that has been granted to us through Christ our Lord, the application of redemption through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. We also pray, as we always pray, that Those who may be here, even on a Sunday evening, who do not know the Lord Jesus, will find themselves just as did this Philippian jailer, crying out, what must I do to be saved? And that they will find that answer in this text. And will you, Heavenly Father, as we read this text and expound it, dwell upon it, think upon it, also give to us a deep, deep desire to see others come to know the Lord Jesus and to be used of you in the ministry of the word here and as we take that word out in witness and as we send missionaries throughout the world, that you would use us as instruments to proclaim this very same gospel that we find in this text. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 16, beginning with verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and 
Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them that same hour of night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. How wonderful is the salvation of our God, what he has done in the work of the Lord Jesus who shed his blood upon the cross, and as the Holy Spirit takes that wonderful gospel and opens our hearts and shows to us our need and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel, it is a glorious thing for us to contemplate a conversion such as we find here in this passage. There is only one Savior. There is only one Redeemer. There are not several. There are not many ways to God. There is only one, and that is Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And if there is anything that should be underscored in our day, it is the exclusivity of the gospel, that there is only one message, only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But even though there is only one message, and there is only one Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and without Christ we cannot be saved, yet God does not work in precisely the same way in everyone's heart to bring them to himself. It is the same message, there is only one gospel, but for example, some people go through long periods of deep conviction, whereas sometimes the Holy Spirit just very, very suddenly converts a man or a woman or a child. All of these things differ. There are those who are members of our congregation who were brought up in covenant households who really do trust in the Lord Jesus alone for their salvation, and yet the transition from wrath to grace happened in early childhood, and they cannot tell you when it happened. There are others of us who were older when we came to faith in Christ, and for some of us, it was a very dramatic thing. And we can tell you precisely the time and the place, and we can say something about how God worked. Well, God doesn't work every conversion alike, yet there must be in everyone's heart true conviction of sin for there also to be true conversion. Whether you remember that from your childhood or whether you don't, it is always true that those who are converted to the Lord Jesus Christ have also gone through some sort of conviction of sin, some shorter, some longer, some deeper than others, but always a recognition that I am a sinner justly deserving God's displeasure and I am without hope save in his sovereign mercy. That is always the case. Now it's that we want to focus upon as we look at this text and as we think about this Philippian jailer. So the jail is opened. The Lord has sent this earthquake. The jailer, of course, is very frightened. And the first thing that we see is that the jailer was a careless sinner, a careless sinner. Verses 26 and 27, suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. 
When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now his concern here, of course, is that if the prisoners had escaped, then the death penalty would be imposed upon him. That would have been the requirement of his day as a jailer in that era. But we see that he was a careless sinner. He has no fear of God before his eyes. He is drawing his sword, ready to take his own life, and he is giving no thought to the fact that when I take my life, I am going into the presence of the living and true God. He has no thought that perhaps God in his providence may intervene so that I may not lose my life through death penalty after all. Or did he even ask the question, maybe I should check and see. Maybe, maybe the prisoners are here after all. He has no fear of God before his eyes. That's true of us all. Uh, Paul tells us so, quoting the Psalms in Romans chapter 3, there is no fear of God before our eyes. By nature, there is no one who seeks after God. No one who loves him, wants him. No one who desires him. There is no fear of God in the heart of those who are outside of Christ. And he had no care for his soul. Just think, the soul of man that will go on forever and ever and ever, and he has no care for his soul as he draws his sword to take his life. And so this man, and this is true of us all to one degree or another as well, outside of Christ, is reckless about eternity. Just think of it, eternity the very word sends or should send to the heart of those who are outside of Christ a, a shiver of fear. Eternity, eternity. What do we even mean when we say eternity? It is so far beyond our ability to calculate. And yet this man was reckless about going into eternity, Christless, hopeless, without God in his life. He was filled with sorrow, this man. He was saddened that the prisoners, as he thought, had escaped. He was filled with sorrow that he would be take, his life would be taken. He was filled with sorrow that he would be subjected to the same punishment as the escapees. But it was a sorrow that worketh unto death, and not a sorrow that works repentance. The heart of this man knew no godly sorrow, but only worldly sorrow. You'll recall how the Apostle Paul speaks in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And he speaks of that worldly sorrow that works death, that godly sorrow that worketh unto repentance. This man had sorrow, but not godly sorrow. How hard is the heart of man not to sorrow over our shameful rebellion against our Creator and our God. How sad indeed it should make us to think that our hearts are estranged from Him. Man's heart is cold, it is dead, hard, insensible to the gospel. Unlike stone which erodes with acid rain, man's heart toward God grows harder without the Spirit's work of regeneration and conversion. The rocks broke when Christ hung on the cross but our hearts are unbroken apart from the work of the Spirit of the living God. 
So often these days, I hear of churches and pastors and schemes to promote the gospel that ignore this fact, that seem to think that the problem with the unbeliever out there is that we've just not found yet quite the right way to reach him. Well, there is only one way, and that is through his word, taking the word to lost sinners, speaking the word, showing kindness, speaking in a context of friendship, whatever opportunity God gives, and the word proclaimed. The problem is that the heart of man is estranged from God and totally depraved, and the scriptures tell us that we are God-haters. We do not want God. We do not love God. We have hearts that hate the God of the Bible. Our hearts may love our own idea of God, but not the God who really is. So this jailer, as we open this text, is a careless sinner, no fear of God, no care for his soul, reckless about eternity, and filled with sorrow, but sorrow of the wrong kind. And that is true of us all, apart from Christ to one degree or another. But then, secondly, we see the jailer was convicted of his sin. What a remarkable thing. Our catechism speaks of the work of the Spirit as convincing, enlightening, and renewing. And that is what is happening here. A sinner must see his need or he will never come to Jesus Christ. If a sinner does not recognize that he is a sinner, if he doesn't see himself in light of the perfections of God, God's attributes and character, his justice and his holiness, he will never see a need to believe in Christ and to repent of his sins. Now, we used to hear the word nominal Christian a good bit. Uh, you know what nominal Christians are. They are those who profess faith in Christ, who are perhaps sitting in church pews, maybe even who are present every Sunday, who sit under the word, but they are not truly converted, though they profess faith in Christ. The problem with the nominal Christian, and nominal Christians are not real Christians, is that the nominal Christian has never seen his need deep within of a Savior, of a Redeemer. Now, I simply ask the question, even on a Sunday evening such as this, as we are gathered here, those of you who are here faithful to attend, but I ask the question of you, is there a nominal Christian here? Is there someone here who professes, perhaps you're in the services, but your heart is still estranged from personal communion with the Lord Jesus Christ? You still don't know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Is that true of you? That you are a Christian, but a Christian in name only and not in reality, only in profession. Well, this careless sinner was seized by a sense of his sin, seized by a recognition of his need, seized by his danger. His conscience is pricked. What a contrast to his former state within a verse or two. This one who was a careless, neglectful sinner, all of a sudden we find that things have changed for him. What a contrast. And only the Holy Spirit can achieve or accomplish this. And notice also that it was sudden. And I take great hope from this and find a, a great encouragement in this that we can have a hard-hearted sinner one moment 
who the next moment is falling upon his knees, crying out, what must I do to be saved? Does that encourage you? I hope it encourages you about our ministry, that as we preach the word and take the word to our community and to the world, and there are those that you love and care for that seem hard-hearted, that through the Spirit of God, that one who is hard-hearted one moment can be upon his knees crying out under conviction the next. How did this happen? Well, the way it happened was through the Holy Spirit's work. We know that from the remainder of the New Testament. He must have known something about why the city was in an uproar. Why was the city in an uproar? Because these men had proclaimed the gospel. And as they proclaimed the gospel, they had taken away, in this one instance, the evil spirit that would have enabled this woman to produce an income for these people. And so he must have had some knowledge about what these men were preaching, some slight knowledge. And then, of course, there are these men, Paul and Silas, singing praise to God in the stocks, in the prison at midnight. That's a Christian for you. Singing praise to God, recognizing that the sovereignty of God rules all things. Yes, Christians can sing in the stocks, in the prison at midnight. And he must have heard their praises to God. So it seems that the Holy Spirit is using in this man's life fragments of the truth. He didn't have a complete understanding of what the gospel was all about, undoubtedly. He certainly didn't have a complete systematic theology in his head. He had never been, he had never been trained in the catechism. Would have been a good thing had he been, but he, he hadn't been. But the Holy Spirit takes these fragments of truth to which he has been exposed and convicts him of his sin. You know, it doesn't take much of the gospel for a man to be saved. He needs to know he's a sinner and that Jesus is the Savior. And so the jailer cried out, What must I do to be saved? And of course, there are those who think that he is crying out, saying, What must I do in order that I can retain the prisoners and that I not be killed? But that's not what he's doing. The prisoners are there. The apostles, the apostle Paul and Silas, they calm him down. The prisoners are here. And the answer to his question, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, thou and thy house, demonstrates to us, that he had cried out, not out of fear of his life now being taken, but out of a genuine fear of the Lord. He did not mean, what must I do to be delivered from the wrath of my superiors? He meant, what must I do to be delivered from the wrath of God? He fell down trembling, urgently seeking for a way of deliverance from his ruin and from his sin. And when a sinner is under conviction, salvation becomes his chief concern. When conviction of sin happens, whether it is for a long period of time, as it was, say, with a John Bunyan, or whether a short period of time, as it was for this man, the chief concern of a sinner when the Spirit of God applies the gospel, shows him his need of a Redeemer, will be, how can I be a converted man? How can I really come to know the Lord God and commune with him. 
And so he is under conviction. Salvation becomes his overwhelming concern, and the Holy Spirit produces fear. We sing an amazing grace. I always love that line, don't you? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Grace teaches a sinner that you are standing in the presence of a just and holy God and that apart from Christ you were lost and undone forever and ever and ever. That's grace teaching my heart to fear. And grace leads me on and demonstrates to me that Jesus is the Redeemer and relieves me of that fear. Roland Hill was an 18th century uh, preacher of great note. He was sometimes called the second Whitfield. Roland Hill spoke of the blacksmith's dog. Blacksmith had a dog, and the dog used to love to be near its, uh, his blacksmithing master until he started to strike the anvil with the hammer. Now, <clears throat> when that blacksmith took up that calling and that occupation, and he began to beat the the anvil, the sparks would fly everywhere, and the dog was very frightened and he would run away. Then gradually, the dog would get nearer and nearer to his master until finally he adjusted and he learned to sleep near the anvil as his master hit and as the sparks would fly. This is the sinner, asleep under the hammer of God's wrath the word of the Lord that is proclaimed, while the sparks of his wrath fly. There may be a time in which the sinner initially seems to fear, and yet if the operations of the Spirit of God are not effectual in his life, he will hear that word, and gradually his heart will become so hard that he can sleep under the sparks without fear of the Lord. That is a very, very frightening place for a sinner to be. I hope that does not characterize a heart here tonight. The jailer was not at this point converted. Legal fears, recognizing the law of God is just and that I'm, I'm, I'm under the condemnation of God's wrath, legal fears need to become evangelical gospel convictions. He needed also enlightening. He needed renewing by the grace of God. And so that leads us thirdly to look at the jailer's conversion. The jailer's question again indicates that he still wants to do something. Look at this. He says in verse 30, then he brought them out and said, sirs, What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Is there some act of penance that I can do? Is there some good work that I can do? In order to come to to the place where I'm saved, is is there some way that I can be relieved of this distress that has been wrought in my heart as I, as I have these legal fears. Maybe there's some religious act that I can perform that will alleviate the distress. No, the Apostle Paul does not respond, do good works in order to be saved. He does not respond, fall into religious exercises in order to be saved. 
He doesn't say to him, do penance in order to be saved. Not at all. But believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He shows very little understanding at this point of the absolute perfection of the law of God. For when we understand the perfection of the law of God, we know that we can do nothing in order to save ourselves or even contribute to our justification before God. So, the need here, self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency, and that's all of us outside of Christ, self-sufficiency must be slain. The apostle's answer turns him away from penance, away from religious acts, away from works righteousness. The apostle's answer turns him away from his works to faith in Christ. Away from himself to Christ. Away from some other object to the only object that matters, the Redeemer of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we must distinguish, we must distinguish what is happening here. A true faith in Jesus. We must distinguish that from a mere knowledge of the things of the Lord. Now that, I think, is really at the crux of the issue. We must distinguish this man's true conversion by faith in Christ from a mere knowledge of faith in Christ. What this man exercises is the Spirit's gift of faith, and he actually trusts in Jesus Christ as his Redeemer. The Reformers use the term fiducia. That faith is not simply assent to the truth, but it is a trust in Christ alone for salvation. And until this man believed, he was not converted. Faith is not mere assent. A person can say, I believe the law of God condemns. A person then can say, I believe Christ died for sinners. He can say, I believe Christ rose from the dead. He can even say, I believe God's word is true. But that is not saving faith. Saving faith says, yes, all of that. But saving faith says, I trust. I rely not upon anything, anyone other than Christ and Christ alone. Someone here who thinks he's converted because he merely assents to the truth of the gospel. Is there someone here like that? My purpose is not to stir up concerns in the hearts of those who are truly saved. But it is a good and right thing to ask if you are this person. Have I simply assented to these things? I know they're true. I have what the Reformers called historical faith. I know these things happened in time and space and history. I believe they're true. But do you also rest in Christ alone for your redemption? Do you see the difference? Do you see the distinction? Do you see how important it is? The production of true faith is the work of the Holy Spirit who renovates the heart and mind thoroughly. Saving faith is always evidenced. Away with such thought that a person can have saving faith and it never will evidence itself. 
in every person who has saving faith that will be evidenced. How is it evidenced in this chapter? Well, first of all, we have this household baptism to which he was ready to submit. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized, maybe with the same water, by the way. He was baptized at once, he and his family. Now, baptism represents what God does, not what we do. Nonetheless, he was obedient to this command and to this call. And baptism in many cultures costs a great deal. It costs a lot in a Muslim culture when you submit to baptism. And in this day, undoubtedly, there were similarities. Another way in which saving faith was evidenced was the communion of the saints. Immediately he has some sense of this, the kindness that he shows to Paul and to Silas. In verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. You see, he's loving them, caring for them. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the communion of the saints, already at work in this man's converted soul. There's joy in believing. In verse 34, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And there was concern for his family, which is obvious as well. Um, as they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, verse 32. And there was an eager desire to know God's word. So it evidenced itself. Saving faith will always evidence itself, show itself. Never has there been a man truly converted that saving faith did not show. It always shows always, infallibly, will be evidenced. Well, let's wrap up with some final thoughts on this Sunday evening. First, to those or someone who may here be careless, just as this man was careless, neglectful of his soul, careless about eternity, the gospel calls you away from that carelessness. Maybe, maybe the Lord will work first by giving to you fear. That's what happened in my life. I grew up a young man in a moral home with an exemplary father and mother, and I was in church every Sunday, and I could care less about gospel. I'd heard the gospel. I had no understanding of the gospel. I heard about Jesus. I had no understanding about Jesus as a redeemer because I had no understanding about my need. Thirteen years old, I began to have dreams. I had read some of the Bible. Now, I'm not suggesting this was a divine, divine uh, uh, kind of revelation. That's in the Bible. That's where we find revelation. No, no, I had read the Bible. And the Lord worked in my conscience. And so I had read Revelation 14, blood to the horse's bridle. I began to have dreams about the judgment of God that I deserved. What was God doing in my life? He was showing my heart my need. He was bringing real and legitimate fear. 
Do you know, though, where I saw God's holiness best? I saw God's holiness best when I heard John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was the next step for me. Hearing that there was a God who loved sinners, who sent His Son. And there I saw the holiness of God best. For he could actually pardon through the cross a sinner like me. And so if you are careless, it is my prayer that this good news would draw you out of your carelessness and unto Christ. One old theologian has said, Conviction is a hopeful symptom, but it is not a decisive proof of a saving change. Did you hear that? Conviction is a hopeful symptom but it is not a decisive proof of a saving change. You know, I have spoken the gospel, preached the gospel, spoken the gospel to many who have wept, to many whose natural affections have been moved so that sometimes they could could hardly move out of their seats because they're crying. They were stirred from within with no accompanying saving change. Conviction is a hopeful symptom, but it is not decisive proof of a saving change. Listen to this old Dutchman. There's so many good Dutch theologians. True knowledge of our misery is to be distinguished from the mere historical knowledge in that we are unhappy and from an intense general conviction of sin, which many experience for a time and consider to be a saving conviction of the Holy Ghost. Although they are often beset with the pains of hell, which cause them to leave their gross sins for a longer or shorter time, to join with God's people and to use the means of grace more seriously than before, they lack, however, the true characteristics of the real knowledge of sin, and they often speak of unscriptural matters and experiences upon which they build their hope. Above all, they lack true humility, which is a decisive characteristic of grace. The indispensable knowledge of our misery causes our soul to bow down under the judgment of God. We ascribe righteousness unto God, even if he should eternally condemn us. The almost Christian never reaches that point, no matter what convictions he may speak of. His soul fears the punishment of sin but sin itself he does not know. God's people, however, learn to hate sin as an affront upon all the perfections of God, and they justify the judgment of God. However, with much slavish fears, they are often possessed. They must justify God and condemn themselves, so that it shall be fulfilled that whoever condemns himself shall not be called into judgment. That knowledge of our misery causes us to see ourselves as banished from the communion of God and arouses a godly sorrow which worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. Our Reformed fathers were right when they confessed that for God's people, missing God is worse than death. And whoever has learned to know his misery cannot rest until he knows that he is restored into God's favor and communion. 
That knowledge takes us off from all false foundations and causes the afflicted and poor people to make supplication to their judge. It prepares the soul for the revelation of Christ, by whom the law is disarmed of its curse. How necessary, then, is the knowledge of our misery in order that we may obtain that only comfort in life and death. Heidelberg Catechism. Commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. Our trust must not rest in fear and must not rest in conviction. Let's get beyond that, that we may rest in Christ alone. True conviction ends in true conversion. A sense of sin combined with a true trust, reliance on Christ, in whom alone we see mercy. So that, this evening, is the Philippian jailer. How great a sinner he was, ready to take his own life, so careless was he. And yet, in a moment, under conviction, and in another moment, truly converted and saved from attempted suicide to a convert. I think that's a great story, don't you? I think that's a great God, don't you? I think that's a great salvation, don't you? And so, will you pray for the power of God's Holy Spirit to work in lives here and through the ministry of the Word here and through our witness in the community and in the world to convince careless sinners and to convert them? Will you pray that? Will you? May the Lord enable you to remember to do so.